So the Old Testament reading today will come from Joshua 24, 14 through 15. And the New Testament reading, which will also be the sermon text, will be from Matthew 6, 19 through 24. I will be referencing a couple other scriptures throughout. I'll try and give you as much heads up as I can when there will be another scripture to turn to. But uh, this will just be a test on your ability to quickly thumb through your Bible. So uh, be ready for it. Hear now, brothers and sisters, the reading of God's most holy word as we read from Joshua 24, verses 14 through 15. The title of this section says, Choose whom you will serve. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day then whom you will serve, whether the gods your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you now dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Moving now to Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. The title that Matthew has for us here is Treasures in Heaven. And the title of today's sermon is Where is Your Treasure? Starting in verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thus far the reading of God's most holy word. May he bless and watch over the preaching of it. Church, one of the things that I try doing in preparing a sermon, even if it's a last minute sermon, is to both deeply study and personally apply the truths of God's Word that I will be preaching on in the future. The reality is is this is a sermon uh, that that I put together many years ago that I uh, have come back and revised for preaching today. But I want you to know that I approach the preaching of God's Word on the Lord's Day with the utmost reverence and respect. In addition, I always try to teach on topics that I understand both from a theological and also a practical level. I try and preach on things that I have not only learned in truth from the study of God's Word and and other theological resources, but things that I have seen God teach me directly in my life. Because one of the things I have found to be true in the Christian walk is that the Lord teaches us through His Word truths about reality. But He then reinforces those truths practically as He drives His eternal truths deep down into the depths of our hearts as we walk with him through, quote, you'll remember this, uh, this term, the various trials of this life. In reading through Matthew 6, 19 through 24, and in preparing the sermon, I found myself deeply contemplating where my heart has been through the last few years 
of my walk with Christ. The last few years have been especially trying for me, for my family, for my faith. And I praise the Lord for such trials, I honestly do. For it is in them that they help make it clear to us exactly where our treasures truly lie. In fact, I would go as far to say as if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't know where our treasures truly lie in this life. As Peter tells us in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 of his epistle, and yes, I will be reading that, he says the following. Listen very carefully to the words of Peter in chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is in this that you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you haven't seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Church, we all will have trials in this life. I hardly think that I need to teach you this truth. But how we walk through these trials has everything, everything to do with the quality of our faith in Christ and how successful we are in navigating through the trials of this life. Brothers and sisters, our walk with Christ is not one of casual friendship in which we schedule out brief moments in our week to visit with Him. For who in their right mind, if you really think about it, would themselves think that spending a mere few minutes with Christ, maybe a few days a week, would be sufficient in sustaining us through the trials that we have to face in this life? No, a relationship with Christ is one that requires complete devotion in every aspect and in every minute of our life. For Christ has promised his presence, his sustaining power, his ability to rescue us from every evil, to be with us every moment as we sojourn through this life. But for Christ's continual presence in our life, there is a cost. What he requires in return is our utter and complete devotion to him, and we must understand what that cost is. Christ tells us it is a heavy cost to follow him, and we should be aware of that. Consider the following scripture in reference to this point. Reading now from Luke chapter 9, verses 57 through 62. Luke 9, 57 through 62 says this. As they were going along the road, a man said to him, referring to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead and to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. 
Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand in the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you really think upon those words, church, those are, those are heavy words that Christ says to those who are, who are claiming that all that they want to do is follow after him. And we need to recognize that cost that's there. If we don't recognize the cost, I think that we'll forget the benefit. It's kind of like, you know, what can we expect out of cheap quality of something, right? You, you get what you pay for in this life. And I think that is so very, very true in our walk with God. For brothers and sisters, our, our calling to Christ is a clear one, but it's not an easy one. It is a calling that requires complete and utter devotion. You will hear me say that phrase several times today because that is what Christ calls us to, complete and utter devotion, and it is without complete and utter devotion, without it. We, we cannot be successful, truly successful in our walk with Him. And though once Christ does call us into His kingdom, our election and entrance into it are certainly secure. But this does not mean, however, that our hearts do not wander towards serving other masters. Our hearts often wander to worshiping other idols, often too easily. And even on a daily basis, even on a minute-by-minute basis. This is precisely why Christ was so paradoxical in his teachings, specifically in his Sermon on the Mount. Because the heart of Israel had turned so idolatrous that Christ needed to clarify what the true priorities of his kingdom were in light of eternity. He had to expose the idolatrous hearts of many of Israel's leaders at the time and instead clarify the true meaning of the kingdom of God. Thus, the analyzing of our own hearts as to where our own treasures truly lie is essential if we're to understand and properly apply this particular section from the Sermon on the Mount. So let's look closely at the background and context of Matthew 6, 19-24, because it comes specifically right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6 is, is smack dab in the middle of chapters 5-7, through 7, that is recorded in Matthew's Gospel that make up the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Starting in Matthew 6, there is some debate amongst scholars about exactly how the Beatitudes should be ultimately interpreted. But a majority of conservative scholars seem to suggest that a large focus of these Beatitudes and context is primarily a focus on the rewards that are received specifically by God's people for, virtuously, for virtuous and godly behavior when God's people first and foremost, seek the kingdom of God above all else. Such an understanding would find its root in Judaism. Most Jewish teachers stressed rewards for righteousness. In fact, they did this a little too much. Forgetting what the reason behind godly and virtuous behaviors were, this is exactly what Christ was trying to display in their midst. For Judaism at that time had distorted the righteousness of God to a point of being in conflict with the true meaning of the true meaning that Christ comes to teach about the righteousness of God. Therefore, the Beatitudes provide a primary example of this new kingdom, the teachings of this new kingdom that Christ came to institute at His first coming. And this new kingdom is one that God Himself instituted through, specifically the power of Christ, His life, burial, and resurrection. This is why the Beatitudes begin the Sermon on the Mount with a specific focus on God's contrasting kingdom, for Christ was instructing something new, 
There was something new to be taught, and he did this by contrasting it with what was predominantly believed at the time. This, this new teaching was an eternal kingdom that would begin with his life here on earth. That's what he was here to do. He was establishing it. And so the Beatitudes are primarily the beginnings of this eschatological blessing that's bestowed upon God's people as they, in fact, seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness. The entire theological purpose, in fact, of the entire Sermon on the Mount centers ultimately and primarily on the kingdom of God. And so understanding the introduction and context of the Sermon on the Mount is essential to fully understanding Christ's words in Matthew 6, 19-24, which again are right in the middle of this sermon. And similar to the Lord's Prayer, this particular sermon or Sermon on the Mount is not meant to be exhaustive. Notice this parallel. Just like the Lord's Prayer, it is also a framework to teach the overall concept of the kingdom of God to God's people. In the same way that the Lord's Prayer is a framework to teach praying to God's people, Christ's teaching on the Sermon on the Mount is to be a framework to teaching on the things of the kingdom of God. Therefore, understanding and even memorizing, as many people throughout church history have done, this Sermon on the Mount is of great, great value. So let me take just one more moment to quickly overview the titles of each of the sections on the Sermon on the Mount to help give you a a very brief glimpse. I'm just going to look at the titles of them to give you a very brief glimpse into what Christ addressed throughout his entire sermon. Look at the flow. Remember that in the Lord's Prayer, each section tells us something of of, of immense importance of what we're to pray about. And so each of these sections on the Sermon on the Mount, as as you hear them now and as you study them in the future... Understand that these are of great importance to understanding the things of the kingdom of God. As Matthew covers it, verses, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, uh, is the introduction into the Sermon of the Mount. Verses 13 through 14 of chapter 5 discuss salt and light, that contrasting nature. Verses 17 through 20 of chapter 5 talk about Christ coming to fulfill the law, not abolish the law, again contrasting. Verses 21 through 30 of chapter 5, anger and lust. Chapter 5, verses 31 through 32, about divorce. Verses 33 through 37 of chapter 5, about oaths. Chapter 5, 38 through 48, about retaliation and our love for enemies. 6, 1 through 4, giving to the needy. 6, 5 through 14, the Lord's Prayer. The very same thing, notice this connection that we use to understand prayer as we fall off to the, the model of the Lord's Prayer, is in fact found within the structure of Christ's teaching about the kingdom. Fasting is covered in 6, 15 through 18. It is here in 6, 19 through 24 that we have our text for today, discussing our treasures in heaven. 6, 25 through 34, do not be anxious for anything. 7, 1 through 6, about judging others. 7, 7 through 11, about asking and it being given. 7, 15 through 20, a tree and its fruits. 7, 21 through 23, for I never knew you. Christ talking about those who claim the kingdom, but him saying that he never knew them and to depart. And 7, 24 through 27, about building your house on the rock. If you were to go through that, it's amazing the continuity that you see in the connection between these teachings. Typically, when we look at the Sermon on the Mount, we look at them in sections, as we're doing today. But when you look at the overall teaching, we see a model of the entire teaching of God's kingdom. 
It's immensely deep and rich. And I encourage you, uh, brothers and sisters, even today, if you have time, read through the entire section. Read through all of uh, 5 through 7 of Matthew and see the continuity and the deep teachings found within. But as you can see through most of the titles that we just went over, what Christ did in his teaching on the Mount was to make many of the popular and traditional teachings of the day, which, to be honest, would really apply to our day and age too, by using the statement, you have heard it said. He came and said to them, this is what you have heard, right? This is what you've heard over these past you know, few thousand years. This is what we've culminated into. You have heard it said. But to clarify the proper and correct teaching of his kingdom, he responds, but I say to you. This is a pattern he has. You have heard it said, but let me tell you. You have heard it said, but let me clarify this for you. For left to our own means, we as a people, we distort and turn from the true ways of God. It's in our DNA. This is why it is so important as we look at Christ's sermon to understand it as it redirects and corrects many of these inappropriate and false views that are held not only by their contemporary culture, but most certainly in our contemporary culture today. If you were to go through again and look at those sections on the Lord's Prayer or on the, on the kingdom of God found in Matthew 5 through 7, you, you would look, there's, there's direct parallels today. I always like the statement by, by Solomon uh, nothing new under the sun. Right? This is a theme that we've been looking at as Pastor Joe's been up here through Exodus. We see things that were so pertinent to that time, but we look at our day and age, and, and it's so applicable today. Why? Because this is just a repeating of, of cycles. Right? Mankind has done the same thing, especially as a person for my day job teaching history. It's amazing that you see these things over and over and over again, which is why I often tell my students, by the way, um, what we can learn about socialism and communism. Right? It's never worked. History, history tells us that. Um, we, should, we should know that. Because we do see a repeating of things in history. Now, with understanding that this Sermon on the Mount as a whole is about clarifying and redirecting the truths of God's kingdom to his people, um, with, th- with this concept in mind, we, we can now go and look a little bit more carefully and closely as we exegete the specific section of chapter 6, verses 19 through 21 for today. So, in 19 through 21, we learn that the Pharisees were overly and inappropriately concerned about the acquiring of material things. They were very worldly, very worldly. While Jesus taught that there were certainly benefits to a proper attitude towards wealth, and we'll talk about that, Christ ultimately saw that the issue, especially with the Pharisees at the time, was ultimately about man's pursuit of wealth due to his idolatry within his heart. Okay, that was the issue he's directly addressing. You need to understand the, the context of what Christ says throughout uh, his teachings. Because wealth is something that is very prominent in his teaching on the kingdom of God. And even in 6, 19 through 21. But we have to understand in context. He's not saying that wealth is necessarily bad. He's saying that there is an extreme warning that one should heed. Um, because wealth has something very powerful. Something dangerous uh, to um, the drawing of man's heart. And so just as he had addressed in each of his previous sections in his, quote, sermon, Christ displays man's idolatrous bend towards treasuring the things of this world more than the things of God. You'll find that in each one of the sections on the Sermon on the Mount, something to do with too much concern about this world and losing sight of the things about the kingdom of God. And as we look at the particular word treasure in this section, it literally means, when translated, what one saves stores, or invests in. It's very broad. 
It's not talking about a buried treasure. It's not talking about gold or silver. It's saying what one saves, stores, or invests in. In other words, it's what they're all about. It's what their, their motive is. It's what gets them up in the morning. It's what excites them. It's what consumes their mind. The context is clear that this word is not confined to mere gold, as stated. Instead, it extends to cover all, any and all, material possessions and even experiences on this earth. And you might think, how does it apply to experiences? Does money not buy experiences, church? Uh, do people not search with great fervor experiences in their life? Are people not dedicated to experiencing and feeling things in this life? Some people's I- I- idol, I think, is just material things. They could care less how it feels. It's all about how it looks. But there's another type, people who are all about experiences in this life. And money is just a means for them to chase their idols. Therefore, the meaning of treasure ultimately denotes whatever is most prized in this life by a particular individual. Christ knew the temptation that his people faced. Christ always knows what we go through. He knew how tempting and reassuring the treasures of this world were to his followers. Again, look at that parallel. In the same way that they were so tempted to just turn and just trust in the things of this world because they were so tangible. The things of this world were so tangible and, and they could find trust in them. They would find status. They would find security. Um, they, they, they would find prosperity. And so Christ knew how easy it was for one to put one's trust in that which they could see or touch, storing up instead the things of this world as a means of, again, that tangible security that comes along with it. But Christ instead tells his listeners that they are to store up treasures in heaven. Treasures in heaven. For they are far more secure and reliable than the treasures on earth. Where? Direct quote, moth, rust, and thieves destroy them. Christ always taught in this contrasting way. If you look at it, every time I go through things that are taught, not only by Christ, but often by, by other authors throughout the, uh, the New Testament in particular, they, they teach in a contrasting way. This was very common uh, in the culture at the time. And so notice here the contrast uh, that, that's laid before us. Things of this earth are temporal. They are decaying. They are distorted. And the things of kingdom, the things of the kingdom of God, they are eternal never changing and perfect. Therefore, believers are exhorted to lay up or invest in or store up these spiritual assets which should have complete priority over any earthly treasure, possession, or experience. Brothers and sisters, none of us will take any possession from this life to heaven. I had the fortunate but probably more unfortunate experience um, as my, my mother passed away just, just a few months ago. And my mom liked things. Um, I had a complicated relationship with my mom, but I have only good things to say about her. But she liked things. And when she passed, she had a massive storage unit that uh, she never gave anybody the, king, uh, the key to. And it was only when she passed away that I was given the unfortunate task or job, along with my sister and a few other family members, to have to go through that storage unit. And I remember opening up that storage unit thinking, oh, you know, it's only this big of a door. I didn't see how far back it went. And when we opened that for the first time, I, it was 
I have no idea how they packed that thing so full. I mean, these people, I think they were the makers of Tetris or something to, to have packed that thing as full as it was. But it took us, we thought we'd get through it in a day, and it, it took one day, it took two days, it took a week, it took several weeks to finally make our way through it. And it was so bizarre as you learn something like storing up things in this world. You know, you, you think, we know these things, church, right? We, we know that we will take nothing from this life. But there's something so profound that for how unfortunate it was my experience and, and how grieved I am that I lost my mother, the teaching that I got in that exact moment to know that this person who loved things so much that she had passed and these things that she cherished so much, they were just things. They were thrown in boxes. And I remember as a child, these things that were just so, so treasured by my mother. And I'm going through and I see it in a box with another box on top and it's now broken in half. And I'm like, this is so profound. You know, we will, we will take none of this stuff with us. And I thank the Lord for this insight that I got. Because it's one thing for people to say, you know, you're naked, you come, naked, you go. You know, it's really easy to say that. But it's another thing to lose your mother and to look at a person who really treasured things and at the end of the day, it was just garbage, shoved into a storage unit, left to other people to have to sift through, to try and look through, and to try and decipher what even was, was of great meaning. Things that used to have meaning now were broken and meant nothing. And it's so true. We come with nothing in this life, church. We will leave with nothing. And I had the fortunate experience to, to look at that and to reflect deeply upon that, to see it right before me, so tangible. And I praise the Lord and I thank the Lord when he teaches us things that are so tangible, so real to us through experiences like that. And I want you, brothers and sisters, as we come back to, to the script, to notice what Christ gives us in this section of the sermon. He gives us a command. He doesn't give us a suggestion. He doesn't give us an idea. He tells us to do something. He clearly directs his followers to not lay up in verse 19, referring to uh, earthly treasures. He says, do not lay up, but instead we are to lay up in heaven. Do not lay up in earth, but rather lay up in heaven where moth, rust, and thief do not destroy. Christ commands the correct priorities that his followers are to have in their short time on this earth. For something in this life, brothers and sisters, does not have kingdom value, if there's something that you have in this life that does not have kingdom value, then what value does it have at all, if not of the kingdom of God? I do want to clarify, and I, I did momentarily, but I want to be more clear at this point, that Christ is not scolding or condemning wealth. I don't want that to be taken out of context. He is, however, saying, with a stark warning, that money does have the potential to be the root of great evil in this life. We should not neglect it. We should be a good steward of the things that God entrusts to us in this life. For Christ is showing us the dangers of putting our trust solely in earthly things instead of in Him. This teaching, again, is not a condemnation of riches. Again, it is a stark warning of the danger of misplaced treasure. Next, in Matthew 6, 22-24, Christ connects the proper priorities, or heavenly treasures, with the proper spiritual condition. Jesus explains that a good eye promotes a proper spiritual understanding, 
And it also leads to good spiritual health throughout the total person. And maybe you make this connection right away, but if you don't, you need to make the connection that when he talks about a healthy eye, knowing the true value of things, and the bad eye, which is envious and covetous and discontent and and distorted, he's conflicting light with darkness. And this story traces all the way back to where? Where is it the first time that we see the the term I uh, uh, displayed to us in the scriptures? It was in the fall of man. It was all the way back in Genesis 3 as we first saw this contrast. In verse 22, Christ contextually uses the word I as an entrance into man's spiritual condition. Because this I metaphorically represents that of spiritual understanding and enlightenment as seen in Adam's spiritual fall into sin in Genesis 3.5 and 3.7. I'm going to read Genesis 3.5 and 3.7 to clarify this point. Genesis 3.5 states, For God knows that when you eat from it, referring to the tree, your what will be opened? Your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is a theme that has been throughout the entire scriptures. This is not just something that, that Matthew brings up. Shortly after, Genesis 3, 7 states, then referring after the eating of their fruit, the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were opened, and they realized that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And for Genesis 3, along with other verses in Scripture, displays this important connection between Christ's spiritual teaching of the eye and man's true spiritual state or spiritual condition. Matthew 6, 22-23 teaches that when the eye is good, the spiritual vessel, the spiritual entrance into a man, the whole body or the whole spiritual self is healthy and full of light. A good eye versus a bad eye is synonymous with light and darkness with an individual. For church, the eye is the lamp to the entire body, Matthew tells us. Christ tells us, as told to us by Matthew which most certainly is referring to our spiritual hearts, this biblical teaching on hearts. The eye is a lamp to the body. More specifically, it is, it is the eye to the heart, the heart of man, as this is where our treasure is ultimately stored up, verse 21. That's the connection. This eye, this spiritual eye, is a direct place to the heart because when Adam and Eve's eyes were open, what was it that ultimately fell within them. Sin was something that was universal, but it was within their hearts. Their hearts were darkened. They were now not in communion with God, and they were fallen. This was a spiritual condition with them. The Greek word for lamp in verse 22 refers to what would have been a small clay lamp with a wick. It would have been fed with olive oil, and this little lamp would have illuminated the entire surrounding area. A small lamp, an inch or two high, would have uh, lit up an entire room, and that's the idea behind um, uh, this analogy, this small lamp would have been bright enough to illuminate an entire room with just one small flame. The idea being presented here is very, very clear. The lamp and flame may be small, but its effects are very far-reaching. When our eyes are opened by the power of the Holy Spirit, spiritual illumination, it is a task done by God alone. But what we fill our eyes with becomes an extremely important and crucial choice that all believers must consistently make on a daily, on a moment-by-moment, minute-by-minute basis. For Christ teaches us that what we fill our hearts with through the focus of our quote-unquote eyes quickly and predominantly becomes our heart's treasure. 
According to verse 24, there's only enough room on the throne of our spiritual hearts for one master. So the question must be asked by the reader, which master shall reign within my heart? The kingdom of God or the kingdom of this world? For a person cannot serve both masters, one will eventually win out the other and exercise control of the other. Brothers and sisters, many ideas and concepts in this life are not black and white. Oftentimes, concepts in this life, sometimes even theological ones, are complex. Oftentimes, concepts, issues that we understand in general are complex, requiring great critical thinking in order to understand and dissect complex ideas. But the teaching offered here is, to be quite honest and quite frank, as black and white as it gets. We do not, we cannot serve two masters. We are either moving closer in living for and serving the kingdom of God, or we are moving away and towards the kingdoms of this world. There is no between. There is no neutral. Every single person in this room has a heart. Within that heart, there is one throne. We are all on a journey doing one of two things, moving closer towards the things of God as we sojourn through this life, toward the things of eternity, or we are slowly drifting away from them. So it's quite simple. What is your greatest treasure? Which kingdom do you ultimately live for? As followers of Christ, we must ensure that our priorities are proper when it comes to the things of this world. For according to Matthew 6, the throne of our hearts has two very non-negotiable facts. Listen carefully, because I'll repeat this more than once. One, there is only one throne in your heart. And two, that throne is always occupied. It is never vacant. There is only one throne, and somebody is always in that throne. I recognize, church, that these can be somewhat heavy words to hear, For we all exist in a fallen state, striving each day to serve the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. This is a daily battle. Every one of us knows what it's like to struggle internally with the lordship of our heart to the sins that are always in front of us in this life. But if we do not fight it daily with much zeal and fervor, the alignment of our hearts will turn towards the kingdoms of this world. Its alignment is that way, brothers and sisters. To leave it alone, it doesn't fly down in neutral, it doesn't stay straight. If you are not constantly pulling it to the other direction, it will veer into the kingdoms of this world. It's like driving a car with really bad alignment, right? You're always pulling one way, and if you let off, it is only a moment before you find yourself in the ditch. That is what this teaching is illuminating for us about how our spiritual conditions within our heart work. As Joshua stated earlier in the Old Testament text, Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers, the gods your father served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So church, I'd like to leave you today with three applications on how we can best apply this text and ensure that our treasure is first and foremost Christ and his kingdom. Application point number one. Our daily focus must our daily focus must be on God's eternal kingdom. Our daily focus must be on God's eternal kingdom, verses 19 through 21. 
Church, where is your daily focus? It's a question that I ask you as a pastor. Where is your daily focus? Where is my daily focus? This is a question I need to ask too. This is hard stuff. Is it first and foremost on the things of this world? This world can be quite distracting, can it? Do you spend your time each day ingesting the things of this world through news, media, social media, etc.? Or do you spend the required time to feed your souls and commune with the Lord, realigning your wandering hearts day by day, minute by minute, moment by moment? If you focus each day, if your focus each day is not on the kingdom of God, the solution is very simple. Constantly and repeatedly remind yourself of Christ and his eternal kingdom. Remind yourself that he is your master. For to fail to do this means that you have an idle heart, which is a very, very dangerous thing. Stop being so distracted by the kingdoms of this world. Follow instead after your king and focus your eyes upon him and his kingdom, the one that is never changing, the one that is ever faithful, the one that has already been determined, by the way. His kingdom already won, brothers and sisters. We need to be reminded of that. And if someone is here today that is not a follower of Christ, perhaps someone amongst the audience or listening in somewhere else, my question to you, if you heard this today and you are not a follower of Christ, after you've heard this message, what do you place your hope in on this earth? Look around at the state of our world today. It's a hard thing to do, but when we really reflect on it and the Lord works in our hearts, we learn to praise God for times like this, don't we? Because it's times like this that we all see how fragile and futile the kingdoms and things of this earth ultimately are. For all that we see with our physical eyes will one day fail us. All the kingdoms of this world will one day come to an end. Although there is so much beauty in this world and looking at all that God has created on this earth that is just a testament to God's goodness, ultimately our hearts know, ultimately our hearts know that there's something missing. There's something missing if we don't know Christ. It's an incompleteness that you're left with even when everything else seems like it should be complete. You find that nothing else completes it. I have found church. I have seen people in my own life. I'm getting old enough now to have seen friends, family members search their whole lives looking for the thing, looking for what's it. And everybody's thing can be a little bit different, right? It's the thing that gets you up every single day. Ultimately, I've come to conclude this is a very simple teaching. It's their treasure. And as I get older, I've now lived to see people live and die that way, never finding it. I've never found a person who that party was just right, that person was just right, it filled them, that, 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 that drug or that thing, was, it was finally it. It's never enough. And it turns out that this simple teaching couldn't be more true, believe it or not, right? Scripture of God, who would have thunk it would have been so true, only to find that people's treasures were futile. It is only in searching after Christ and his kingdom that that can ever be satisfied. That's what we're missing. That's what someone who doesn't know Christ is missing. It is their redemption in Christ. It is their reunification to their master, to their maker, and to their king. And so my advice to you is turn to him, for he is gentle and humble, and he will bring completeness to your empty soul. He will bring completeness to your empty soul. Point of application number two. What we put into our spiritual eyes is what we will get out of our spiritual hearts. 
Point number two, what we put into our spiritual eyes is what we will get out of our spiritual hearts. Church, are you content with your walk with Christ? If your answer is yes, praise the Lord. And I can say with certainty that it is because you have purposely and intentionally guarded the treasure of your heart by only allowing the things of Christ's kingdom to enter into it. It is not by mistake that a person walks faithfully with the Lord. It is by the grace of God and is by a person intentionally working on these spiritual disciplines in connection with God's grace that this is able to happen. But if you're discontent, if your answer is no, and you are discontent with your walk with Christ, and if you're frustrated with your fellowship daily with Him, it is not because you have only allowed... Is it not because... Is it not because you have only allowed darkness to continuously enter through your eyes, darkening the rooms of your heart? My question to you is, have you placed too much hope on the mammon of this world, only to neglect the heavenly treasures that Christ calls us to? Repent, brother or sister, that your Savior may again re-enter to the throne of your heart. For God is gracious, ever patiently awaiting for His children to acknowledge their sin and confess it to Him. For he is a gracious and forgiving king. Therefore, brothers and sisters, guard your spiritual eyes carefully. Being ever careful what you put into it on a daily basis, for your eyes are always being filled by something, and your throne is always being occupied by someone. There is no neutral. It is occupied every moment of every day. Who is on that throne? And so hear one last time the words of Christ in Matthew 6, 23. These words, But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. Fill your hearts with light, church, daily, that your treasure will be Christ and Christ alone. And point of application number three, which really summarizes all of these points of application, and I've already said it many times, is this. We are always serving a master, and we can only serve one master. We are always serving a master, and we can only serve one master. The heart, brothers and sisters, is a voracious treasure hunter. Never is it neutral. It is also highly partisan, having only room for one king or one master, And if you have ever felt the tumultuous pull between the two opposing sides as your heart enters into a battle for lordship, you will immediately be able to relate to the experience that exists when our hearts enter into a battle for the heart's throne. As this battle wages within, be reminded one more time of these two things. One, there is only one throne in your heart. And two, that throne is always occupied. Every moment, every second, of every day, of every month, of every year, throughout your entire life. There is only one throne in that heart, and it's always occupied. Church, who is it that sits at the throne of your heart? For it must be Christ, and it must be Christ alone. We must fight daily to keep our proper master in the proper place within our hearts. For if we do not, idols of all types lurk closely by, waiting for any opportunity to pounce and to take out, even with great violence, the one who occupies the heart's throne. In closing, brothers and sisters, 
I ask one more time the question, where is your treasure? It's a difficult question, but it is a necessary one. For if we cannot say with conviction that it is God alone, then we have begun to identify the personal idols that exist within our heart, and we must waste no time in running back into the loving arms of our Father, placing him back upon his right throne. I want to conclude today with an excerpt. I'm going to read the entire thing in conclusion from Charles Spurgeon's morning and evening devotional. I found this to be very fitting and very applicable, and I ask that you would just bear with me another minute or two as I read through Spurgeon's devotional on this. Spurgeon says this, The disciple must follow his master. Christ was not of this world. His life and his testimony were a constant protest against conformity with the world. Never was such overflowing affection for men as you find in him, but still he was separate from sinners. In like manner, Christ's people must go forth as did Christ. They must take their position as witness bearers for the truth. They must be prepared to tread the straight and narrow path. They must have bold, unflinching, lion-like hearts, loving Christ first and his truth next, and Christ and his truth beyond all the world. You cannot grow in grace to any high degree while you are conformed to this world. The life of separation may be a path of sorrow, but it is the highway of safety. And though the separated life may cost you many pangs and make every day a battle, yet it is a happy life after all. No joy can excel that of the soldier of Christ. Jesus revels himself so graciously and gives such sweet refreshment that the warrior feels more calm and peace in his daily strife than others in their house of rest. The highway of holiness is the highway of communion. It is thus we that shall hope to win the crown if we are enabled by divine grace to faithfully follow Christ. The crown of glory will follow the cross of separation. A moment's shame will be well recompensed by eternal honor. A little while of witness bearing will seem nothing when we are finally forever with our Lord. Brothers and sisters, may Christ be your treasure. May you seek him first in all that you do. May you repent when you do not. And may the love and grace of Christ continue to transform you into his image until the day that we see him again face to face. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for these reminders. I pray for myself. I pray for the leadership of this church. I pray for the members of this church. I pray for the visitors. I pray for your entire kingdom that our hearts would treasure you above all else. Help us to understand that teaching. Help us to know it at a deep level. Help us to apply it. To you be the honor, glory, and power in all things. Amen.